Well, good morning, church. We're so glad you're here, especially our, our little school parents and grandparents and such. Uh, thanks for the musical interlude. That was nice. Um, I don't normally get a fanfare. Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, we're so glad Mark's still vertical. He has been so ill. But we're so glad that you're with us. Thank you for being here. Um, I've got to tell you, I love little school. Uh, I work here, if you didn't know that. Um, a, a, a day a week but I work here it's it's a it's a grueling half day um, and I leave my office door open all day and one of the reasons I do is so that I can see the kids going up and back and what amazes me I love kids but what amazes me are the teachers uh, they when I go downstairs they're in this little room singing their hearts out and I know the noise level in there has got to be amazing yet they do it every day. They play with them every day as if this is the first day they ever saw that kid. They're so excited. And then as they're going up and down the hallway, they're singing little songs that get stuck in my head the rest of the day. <laughs> it, they seem to never wear out of patience. Now, I, I know that you probably do, but just don't tell me. Let, allow me to live in that world because I am amazed. And Elizabeth, thank you so much for all that you've done for these wee ones among us. We're very grateful. Now, those of you that are, are normal, uh, regular attenders here, and the abnormal as well, we like them. More and more of them are coming, being attracted by somebody, we're not sure. We are going through the scripture, and we are now in 1 Timothy. And we go through a book a week, on average, 1 Timothy. And if you've been reading along with us, I don't know if you noticed it or not, but there's something very different in 1 Timothy especially if you've just read First and Second Thessalonians. One of the reasons is First and Second Thessalonians were two of the first books Paul wrote, probably his first two books. First Timothy was almost his last. A lot has happened. The Bible's not written in chronological order or arranged in chronological order. And so a lot has happened, and this is a very different book. Here... There's no wrangling over law and covenant like there would be in Romans, or like there would be in, in 1 Corinthians. Here, there's no argument about setting certain things this way and that way as you would find in Galatians or Ephesians. No, that's, that's gone. Here, there's not even a, the end of the world is coming, which you get a lot of in 1 and 2 Thessalonians and in Galatians. and other, You don't get any of that here. It's as if Paul is beginning to understand that the church has a future as a community in the here and now, and we might be in this for the long haul. That's one of the hardest things for anybody to settle in, in is that this might be for the long haul. This, this new thing that we got excited about, we're going to have to be excited about it every single day. We're going to have to work on this every single day. And Paul was learning to live with something that we have to learn with. Uh, we have to learn as well, rather. Living in this age, but belonging to another age. Years ago, my father was talking to me, and he said, Be careful who you marry. If you marry somebody who's not from your country, you'll never be home. And that's, he was right. One of, one of us will never be home. You know, in Scotland, Cammie could understand the people half the time. Here, 
That's uh, about half the time for me. Um, I was in Alabama the, the, yesterday, not even half the time. I always thought that those are probably words. I'm, I'm, I'm not really sure, but I, we've, we've narrowed it down to words. What is it like for a Christian to live in this world but not be part of this world and be living, belonging to a different world? The ethical teaching we find in 1 Timothy and the organizational teaching seems to be designed to ensure that the church is acceptable to those in the outside world. In other words, we're not just passing through anymore. We're actually claiming territory, and now we need to appeal to the people who are around us. And if we draw attention to ourselves, it, it can't be, Paul would indicate, as a cult or as a strange group. You have to be careful the way you present yourself. And isn't it tragic that if you do man-on-the-street interviews, and I've seen enough of them to make me sick, that ask people what they do, do not go to church, what they think of church people and what they think church people think of them, it's all negative. It's terrible. Somehow Christians, Paul would say, need to redeem our reputation as a people of love and grace, as a people of open arms. We need to be the community that holds up Christ while waiting to be with Christ again. Paul even changes some of his teaching in Timothy. And if you weren't paying attention, you might have missed it. In 1 Corinthians, for example, he tells them not, if you're single, stay single. Because there's no reason to get married if the end of the world was coming quick. No reason to have babies if persecution's right up on top of you. So he says, if you're single, stay single. If you don't have children, don't have children. In fact, he says, I wish all of you could be like I am. And he was a single fellow at the time. As far as we know, he stayed that way. But in 2 Timothy, in I'm sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 3, he tells them, get married, have babies, and behave. The Gnostics were on the rise as well. And it's hard to describe Gnosticism because there were so many different variations of it, and every single variation is intensely weird. But basically, it boils down to that we're saved by knowledge and our behavior doesn't have to adjust. There were variations on that. And the Gnostics were on the rise, so Timothy had to be warned that there was something out there called knowledge, but as Paul put it, it's so-called knowledge. It's not real knowledge. This morning on the way in, I was listening to the radio because I wasn't thinking, and it was on a news channel. And they asked this man, now what do you think about the polls for next week's election? And I'm thinking, this is the guy that got Michigan 20 points wrong. Why are you asking him? What does it take to get fired from this job? But the world is consistently wrong. They'll tell you, follow your heart. You know, that's not always been a good idea, has it? Let's be honest. I, that always got me about the first Star Wars movie. Uh, I, I watched it because evidently it was required. Um, and... Here you are, you're flying a fighter, and you're in, in an intense warfare. It's a very complex machine, and what is the advice you're given? Don't think. Just feel. Be stupid, Luke. Go in there on auto. No, think. Thinking would be good. He tells Timothy, you think, but make sure what you're thinking is real knowledge, not false. Be careful. And then Paul 
reminds him, stick to the basics. Jesus Christ, born, lived, crucified, resurrected. He's even warned against stuff church people love to do, theological speculation. I get asked questions quite a bit about, what do you think about such and such? And inside, my first thought is, why do you care what I think about it? I'm not God. I work for him, but I'm not him. Second, it probably doesn't matter. What do you think about Jesus? That matters. What do you think about your neighbor? That matters. What do you think about the world? Red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. That matters. But let's not argue about these other things. Those of you that uh, know of the writer um, uh, Umberto Eco, who, who, who died recently, in his, one of his books, he takes a long passage about the church meeting in medieval times. And some of them were even trying to get the death penalty against each other over the argument, did Jesus ever laugh? You know, sometimes Paul tells Timothy, these kind of discussions aren't helpful. Instead, be blameless. Look like Jesus. And I find it fascinating that all the things that change from First and Second Thessalonians to the book of First Timothy, that's the one thing that does not change. Go back to basics. Look like Jesus. Remember Jesus. And I find some great comfort in this. Now, in the time that Paul wrote this letter, there was false teaching going on, but there's always been false teaching. And we don't get details of what false teaching that was going on. And I think there's a reason for that. There's sometimes I wish I knew. When he says, you watch out for that person who's teaching false doctrine, I wish he'd tell me. But I understand why not. Because if we did, we'd focus on that one teaching. Where instead, he says, what we need to remember is what you already know. Let's take a look at chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer, watch this, or devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. If the teacher doesn't sound like love, they're not talking about Jesus. If they don't show love even to their enemies, they're not representing Jesus Christ. And that love cannot be up to um, their, the private definition. I've, had, I've listened to people tear somebody else apart and say, I'm only doing this because I love your soul and I want it to be saved. And I'm going, that's not how you love. I'm married to Miss Cammie. I know what love looks like. That's not love. Love has got to look like Jesus. By the way, Paul shows us how to stay focused on love. How do you get focused on love and not on these endless speculations? Remember who you are. You're a sinner, as Brother Allen put it, who has been made a saint by the work of somebody else. Somebody else brought you in here. Your works didn't do it. And Paul's deep sense of humility kept him 
on track to love others. He did not lift himself above others because he remembered who he was. Let's look at this in chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Where did his focus go? To God. Why? Because he first looked at himself and saw his own dirt, his own problem, and said, I, I need Jesus. I choose Jesus. That song was written by the doctor uh, of two of our dear members. And we like to bring that song out from time to time to hallow her memory and also to, to remind ourselves, we get to choose. We choose Jesus. By the way, he used a couple of names here in the book, Hymenaeus and Alexander. We, uh, by the way, um, Hymenaeus gets named in 2 Timothy as well, with, along with a new player, Philetus. We don't know what they were teaching, but if we put the two passages together, we get a couple of ideas. One, they had made a public profession of their faith, but not changed their behavior. Brothers and sisters, we got to act like Jesus. We got to love like Jesus. We got to give like Jesus. We got we to gotta care for others like Jesus. That's the whole point. We can't say, I, I believe in him and not change. I've had people ask me, do you think you're saved by faith only? That's a problem for me. I, I want to back up and see what you mean by that. Expl I'll do it this way. What if, please understand, if you're just starting to pay attention, this is an illustration. <laughs> it didn't happen. Are we ready? Let's say a Tennessee state trooper were to walk in here and say, um, Patrick, we've received really credible intelligence that there's a bomb in the building and it's going to go off in about 10 minutes. We need you to get the people out. Now that last sentence, he would have been saying to himself because I would have already been at pockets <laughs> and I would have wished you the best of luck. I really would. Because I believe him, I act. I move. But too many people believe in Jesus like they believe in Cambodia. They believe it's there, but the belief that it's there doesn't change anything about their behavior. They never about say something to another driver and go, wait a minute, there's a Cambodia. I shouldn't do that. Or, you know, they're about to treat their wife in a certain way or treat a friend in a certain way. Go, you know, I shouldn't do that. That whole anchor Wat thing. I need to remember Cambodia. We don't do that, do we? Jesus says real belief changes behavior. And these guys made a public profession of faith and didn't change their behavior. Perhaps, it seems, they had given up on Jesus' return. Don't give up. Don't give up. You will see Jesus, whether here or there, 
you will see him soon enough. If they were following the Gnostics, they would have said something like, well, your faith is all that matters. We're saved by grace, therefore we can do whatever we want to do. No, you're not saved by grace so that you can sin. You're saved by grace so you don't have to sin. You're no longer a prisoner of sin. Now you get to live in grace. So how should you live? It all starts with prayer, doesn't it, Brother Albert? It all starts with prayer. Take a look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. By the way, I get stuck on that sometimes. And I'll even talk to God about all people. Even that one. You know, you know who I'm talking about. You have one of those guys too. Don't point, don't point. We, we all, we all, we, yeah, all people. Even thanksgiving for kings and all, the, for kings and all those in authority. Let's, let's back it up. Don't just pray for them. Don't just pray about them. You know, Lord, smite them, Lord. That, no, no. Pray for them, and there's a thanksgiving thing there too. We might want to watch what we put on Facebook attacking people, even leaders. For kings and all those in authority. I wanna, I'm going to stop there because it goes on, but it says you, want, you need to live quiet, peaceful lives in holiness. I want to I answer a question. I'll ask it and answer it. Why would Paul tell Timothy to pray for an emperor that was persecuting them? And the answer is this, because our desire is the same as Christ's desire, that that emperor come to know the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Not that they be destroyed, but that they be brought into the same joy we have. We even want that for them. I'm going to move on now, guys. By the way, you visitors, uh, we, the whole church is so glad you're here. One of the reasons they're glad, they're just about to find out. And that is, looking at the sermon this morning, I realized it was a bit long. And I said, you know, with visitors here, that would be just unkind. So I told the, the, our, our, my great man, Barry, up there, I might skip a bit or two. And they were all very excited. They were throwing things into the air and such. And um, there was, uh, I was, one spoke in tongues. It, it, was, it was a little disturbing. But those prayers were there that the church would not be held in disrepute. Whatever we say in public and what we think in private brings a, either a good or a bad reputation upon the church. We should have that concern about the reputation of the church at all times because the church is the bride of Christ and Christ is who we love. In fact, it says, men lift holy hands without anger, without disputing. Women dress modestly. By the way, modestly, we don't understand that term. Uh, when we say modest, we think don't show too much skin. And yeah, that means chaste. And Bible does talk to us about being chaste. But back then it meant something different. Modest meant don't be showy. You know, don't come in with all the spangles and bangles and all that other. God doesn't mind that you're pretty. We don't mind that you're pretty. The whole thing was let, don't let that be the first thing you think about. 
Let it be more about Jesus. You see, here's the thing. We, you may not realize this, but ladies, women in the church were freer than women in the greater community. And he says, now be careful how you use the freedom that you don't cause disrepute upon the church. And he says the same to men about the lifting holy hands. Don't do any anger. Don't do any arguing. You be careful how you behave. The instructions in chapter 3 about elders and deacons are often viewed through American and Western European eyes, and we come up with this boardroom mentality. Not here, thank God. But too many churches are ruled by a board. No, no, no. If you look at that, it's a household model. We, we do this like a family. Men are here. Women are here leading as a family. Think of these as, as you go through them, not as some rigid list of requirements, but rather as God's leash law for the mind. Suggested thinking list. Many of you have had a reading list in your life. Those teachers that when they release you for summer vacation say, and here's your reading list. Oh, that's unkind, isn't it? Well, the joys of summer is not reading what you're told to read. And even in your, in your university, I remember my favorite thing about not being in university was I finally got to read what I wanted. I get that. God has a suggested thinking list. And he gives it in chapter 3, like he does in Philippians. We already looked at that earlier. But he says, keep your focus on the right thing. 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16, please, if we'll get that up. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. That does not mean at church. That means we are the church wherever we are. All right? This isn't rules about how to behave in this building, but how to behave as a child of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. By the way, that's one of the earliest Christian creeds. And Paul puts it in Scripture and says, just remember that. That changes everything. And take a look at the next passage here. Verse, chapter uh, 4, verses 1 through 5. The Spirit clearly say, says that in latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come about through hypocritical liars whose conscience have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it's consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Now, don't worry about what, they were, what the false teachers were of the day. That's not the point. The point is this, that last bit. We consecrate the world through our behavior and through prayer. We take territory back and we give it to God. Whether it's an institution, a day, a meal, a family gathering, uh, something which could have been a dispute, we redeem it by refusing to be outloved or outprayed. We will be the people of Christ. 
that is our decision. And then, I won't read these, but in chapter 4, he does a couple of times, stay in training. Stay in training. We have neighbors that concern me. They're a block away, but from where we are in our house, we look down into their, their garage, their garage, for those of you that are French. Every day, summer or winter, those garage doors are opened, and they're in there lifting weights, running on treadmills. This is the kids, this is the parents. And then, they're, then they sometimes get loose and they run about the neighborhood and, and, until they're corralled back in there. But I mean, every single day. And then you go at night and there they are again. And I'm thinking, I don't know who they are. You know, I plan to meet them someday, but not when they're that sweaty. And, and show them that Paul says bodily exercise profits little, but um, they might hurt me. Exercise is fine. The point I'm trying to make is this. They're training for something. I don't know if they run marathons. I don't know what they do, but they're in training. And I look at that, and I'm actually a bit humbled and ashamed when I see how dedicated they are to this. Because Paul's telling Timothy in chapter 4, you be that dedicated to looking like Jesus. You be that dedicated to loving the people you meet. You put in the effort and the sweat. By the way, he talks to the young people too. And he says, and because Timothy was young, young people, set us an example of faith. Older people can get off track. We can get grouchy. We can get unhappy. You might want to remind us of our joy. In chapter 5, we'll put that one up if, you, if you've got it. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. He talks to Timothy as a young man. Don't rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. That means you're allowed to exhort us. You're allowed to teach us. You're allowed to come to us and say, no, I don't think that looks like Jesus. I, don't th I think you're getting off track. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with absolute purity. You guys are important to us very important. It's a family here. And how serious is Paul about this? This is where we get uncomfortable. He even tells the slaves to be careful about how they behave so that they don't bring disrepute upon Jesus. That is not, that is not God saying slavery is okay, because it isn't, and we'll find that out when we get to the book of Philemon. What he's saying is this, the way you behave matters, even if you're a slave. No matter what your situation, what you choose to do, how you choose to behave matters. Live, Paul's really saying, just in the, and he had put this in there. Live, live as if this world just doesn't matter all that much. People, yes. Stuff and things and power and position, not at all live different than the world. And I want to give a word here as we're entering the, the last lap about false teachers, because he talks about false teachers. And to really to help you understand the word false, we need to travel far to eastern Tennessee. 
I was in eastern Tennessee about 10 years ago or so now. I, I can't really remember exactly when, but at that time we lived in Michigan and we, were, uh, we, we had parrots and we took care of parrots and helped people rescue parrots and it was a great time. And I was talking about that around a table of Christians on a Sunday afternoon. And one of the deacons looked at me, a fine man, a good man, a man I consider one of my friends. And he looked at me when, he, when I said, I had one parrot we kept uh, the whole time, stayed with me, went to work with me and all the other. And he said, isn't it ill? And I froze. I didn't, I didn't know what to say. I was going back over my head to think, what? how did I give him the impression I had a sick bird? And I said, excuse me, sorry. And he said, um, isn't it ill? And we went like this back and forth till he started to blush and he was becoming uncomfortable and I didn't feel good about it. And finally, somebody else said, he means, isn't it bad tempered? I went, oh, no. We could have finished that, just use English. You know, uh, that, uh, it's, a, it's a great language. We had a good time over it. The point is, he was using a word different than the way I use the word. Paul's using the word false different than the way we use false teacher. But most people say false teacher. They mean the way they're teaching their church how to sing, or the way they're doing the communion, or the way they're organizing, or they're letting the wrong person stand up there at the microphone. No, no, no. To Paul, and look in Peter as well, especially Second Peter, the definition of a false teacher is someone who teaches Christ out of false motives, particularly listed to get money, to get power over others, to get sexual favors. He says, you watch out for people like that. He wasn't saying, you'd better listen and critique the sermons to make sure they're not false. He's saying, you watch your character and the character of those that lead you. See, it all comes back to behavior. Every aspect of behavior must fall under the rule of Christ. Now, my father tells me this story. He says I was there, but I don't remember it. He was baptizing in a, in a river, and one of the men on the, the shore decided it was time for him to be baptized too. And he waded in, and he got quite a bit out to my father when his wife yelled, John, you have your wallet in your back pocket. And he froze for a minute, looking back how far it was back out to the shore. And my father was just right over here. And he turned and yelled at his wife, I guess it needs to be baptized too. I don't know what part of your life has not yet been baptized, but it needs to be baptized. Everything needs to come under the rule of Christ. Mark, if you'd bring your team back up. In a moment, we're going to have a, a last song. I'm going to ask that we put up 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 16. And would you all stand with me, please? And why don't we do this? Why don't we all read it together? But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, 
I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever. Amen.